0: hey everybody thanks for tuning in to deep dive the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books bios history and criticism i'm your host steve J. Our guest today is Wayne Warner, who wrote the book Backstage Nashville, the undisclosed story of a major label recording artist. Welcome, Wayne.
1: Thank you. It's so great to be here. Welcome to my studio.
0: Looks pretty cool. You have quite the story, and one, me in particular, is tempted to ask, how does a young man from the furthest points north in Vermont get to the highest heights in Nashville and country music?
1: Well, it was, it was quite a journey. I don't know how high the heights were, but it was certainly quite a journey, not only geographically, artistically and emotionally as well. It seemed to happen really, really quick. I grew up on country music, played in my dad's band. I joined his band when I was six years old. And Nashville literally called.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that you grew up in a musical family, and one of the consistent parts of your book is they would accompany you both to Nashville and on the road, on the bus, everywhere.
1: Well, you know, the family that plays together stays together. That certainly was true in our case. It was a great thing to have them be a part of the whole journey. And Sis, my manager who you met, uh, no matter where you were, you had your family with you. So it was really nice. You know, Dad was quite often the substitute bus driver. And Sis always knew uh, where it was he was taking me. So it worked out really well.
0: Yeah, and there's an amazing story of your dad and uh, Buzzy's Barn Dance and the Friday Night Square Dances. Can you tell us about that? I thought that was really cool.
1: Buzzy's Barn Dance, you know that? Or we say barn dance, Stephen. Uh, it literally was a barn. They had, we played in the hayloft, and uh, the cows were down below us on the Saturday nights, and mm-hmm. people would come out of the woods and uh, go to that dance hall. My dad was the house band, and I first stepped foot on that stage as a kid, I guess that's where it all started at Buses. Yeah, Buses was quite the happening place around here.
0: We drew some pretty big crowds too, right?
1: Well, we did, and we went on to build up our own dance hall. Warner's Dance Hall became—it was the biggest in the state of Vermont. We packed that place for sure. It was—it was a happening, happening the place, and it's where I got a chance to really hone my chops. You know, they allowed me to grow as an artist, and that was a really neat stage for me to develop on, for sure.
0: And as you mentioned, you were still very young and at 15 years old, you made your first record and it was in Vermont's only recording studio. Isn't that right?
1: The only recording studio, Stephen. There was one studio and I was surprised at that. A little eight-track studio. It was the first time I had ever walked into one and I thought uh, I was in heaven. I knew I had found my, well, my my turf where I felt like where I belonged. And I think every artist will understand what I'm saying there, but it was it was home. I knew it the minute I... I walked in there and, and got behind that mic and saw all those knobs. Little did I know where that would take me, but that was, uh, that was the beginning. And, and it certainly was, uh, was an exciting time.
0: You started out on drums in your dad's band and then moved out front. Is that
1: right? I did, only because my dad's drummer broke his arm. <laughs> and so they needed a drummer. And so uh, I started in my dad's band playing the drums before I moved up to lead vocalist. And it's been uh, quite a ride for sure.
0: So not long enough to your 16th birthday, you're home and the phone rings in your house and you answer it.
1: I remember that call. And there's a lot I don't remember in life, but I certainly remember that one. I heard my my song that we recorded in that little studio just by coincidence, Stephen, on my 16th birthday. And a radio station, a local radio station here, unbeknownst to us, uh, sent that off to what he thought was the biggest producers at the time, the ones who was getting all the, the records from. And so our phone rang one day with a guy with a Southern drawl, a guy by the name of Ray Pennington was on the other end of the line. I guess he heard something in that young voice that he thought was different than anything he had heard. He wanted to produce a session. So it wasn't long after that that we loaded up the Studebaker <laughs> and made that journey we talked about earlier, 24-hour drive to Nashville. You know, this is where the hit records are being made. You know, Ray Pennington was behind a lot of hit records. And he brought in all the, you know, the A players. Of course, I, I wasn't really old enough to know really who I was surrounded by. You know, Larry London, who played on so many of Elvis's records, Buddy Emmons on Steel, Janie Fricky, uh, Singing Harmony. There, my world really expanded. It really changed the, the trajectory of my, my life. Putting on those headphones and hearing that band come to life between my ears was an amazing experience, as any artist knows. And I've been recording ever since.
0: Yeah, and you were only 16, but uh, that session where Ray put together that hot band and then he handpicked some songs for you to listen to and to choose, but which you did and you sang, but on your ride back home to Vermont, you decided you wanted to write your own songs rather than do covers, right?
1: Well, I did. You know, Stephen, at that time, if you were a 16-year-old boy who listened to country music, you didn't tell anybody. You know, like the song goes, I was country when country wasn't cool. The songs that I was singing as a 16-year-old boy was the typical country, you know, my heart's broke and, you know, I'm sitting on the bar stool feeling sorry for myself. I just didn't feel like I was connecting to the songs that were being written and pitched to me at that time. I didn't feel connected to them, and so I didn't feel like my peers who I wanted to sing to could connect to them. I had to dig a little deeper, and I I did pull out my pen, and writing has become one of my favorite parts of the gig now. Uh, I love to be able to create something, as any writer knows, when you get that line you've been waiting for, uh, you know, in your line of work with, with all you do in marketing and everything, you know, you just know when it's, when it's right. when you get that magic line. You know, I was lucky enough to hear Bonnie Tyler sing with me on one of my records. You know, a pop icon who I, I grew up listening to and to hear her sing these, little, these lines that I wrote.
0: Do you remember the first song you ever wrote? That you were happy with? <laughs> I'll, I'll qualify it a little bit.
1: That I was happy with? Um, no. You know, I've never been asked that before, Stephen. And I don't remember. Although I don't, I don't usually write a song just for the sake of saying I'm going to write a song. So I try to be happy with every song I write unless I'm really inspired. A briefcase writer is something that would be very hard for me to do. You know, let's get together and write at 9 o'clock. I've done it. but it's challenging. And, and sometimes it's been really rewarding. For me, I have to be inspired. I try to write things that I know I'm going to be happy with.
0: And that's an interesting term, briefcase writer, which I hadn't heard, but it seems that that is more and more prevalent in, you know, not only country music today, but pop music as well. Um.
1: Yeah, yeah, Stephen, that's right. You, you nailed it. Yeah. You know, let's get together and co-write sometime is such a overused phrase in Nashville. You know, I don't even, I don't know this person. You know, for me, writing a song is really creating a sort of a child, and so I want to get to know somebody. I want to know we're digging from the same dirt. I want to know that we're creatively coming from the same space. And so co-writing is something that I, I don't do a lot of. One I was discouraged for a minute when I signed with the publishing company down there. They thought what I was doing was uh, unique, mm-hmm. so they wanted me to just keep doing whatever that was. What I really, I guess, I suppose, Stephen was trying to copy everyone else and failing miserably. Mm-hmm. But it's something that apparently worked, you know, and and the door doors seemed to open. So uh, I never did do a lot of co-writing, but it has been has been some fun experiences.
0: Well, you mentioned people would take notice, and another famed producer, Harold Shedd, took notice for sure.
1: Man, Harold Shedd, you know, deputized as a genius by his own successes.
0: For those who may not be familiar with the name Harold Shedd, you would certainly recognize some of the artists that he did, which is Alabama, Reba McIntyre, Shania Twain, Toby Keith, many others.
1: Yeah, and discovered them. When Harold Shedd was digging what I was doing, that was validation for me. That was a really cool step, and it's, it's one I'll always appreciate. I mean, Harold certainly changed, changed my life. He gave me credibility, in my own mind especially, that I was doing the right thing. When Harold Shedd calls you and uh, wants a meeting and digs what you're doing, uh, that was, uh, for me, certainly another highlight of my career.
0: Now, did he flip you to Atlantic Records, or were you— was he with Atlantic? How did that work out?
1: He flipped me into Atlantic Records and in a hurry. Hmm. You know, a lot of people don't know about this. He sort of came out of retirement, Stephen, uh, after heading up a few labels in Nashville and bringing us all those people that we know. And he started up a, a little a label called Time Film. I was to be his first act on that, uh, which I was really excited about because I had done the dance with some of the major labels Harold was starting an independent label, and I just, I, I love the title independent. I love what it stands for. I don't like things done by committee when it comes to music. I was really excited about that. But apparently, they had a little party one night, and they, the new head of the new head of Atlantic that had just taken over Atlantic in Nashville, Barry Colbert, I uh, heard this guy that Harold was gonna put out. The next thing I knew, I was back on an airplane. We were signing contracts to Atlantic. You know, being on a label, a major label, well, it, it was certainly something that I, I learned a lot from. Uh, it was a great experience. And again, it helped give me validity that I was doing something right because I wasn't doing it the way everyone else was doing it. And so I was often asking that question. Am I doing things right? Is, is what I'm doing working? But that's the way things happen. You know, uh, Harold called us. Uh, the next thing we knew, we were on Atlantic. And so it was quite an experience. And certainly got to learn a lot about how a record drops, you know, and how a label works. And in some ways, how it does it.
0: Right. And some of the practices, I know it seems that um, you found the radio buys pretty distasteful, you know, and I don't know that people out there know exactly what goes into making a hit record, but some of it is um, a little, you know, what I'm talking about.
1: Well, yeah, you you know, you're hitting all the right notes there. You know, one of the things that I learned, uh, there are so many great people in radio. A lot of them signed up. Uh, because they love music. And then um, when when we get into talking about major labels, you're talking more about the business. So myself and and a lot of the radio station DJs had a lot of talks about that, for sure.
0: And you go on to have a relationship with another label called Big Machine that was started by Toby Keith and uh, a man named Scott Borchetta. And Toby left pretty quickly. Scott stayed on, right?
1: Right. Yeah, I, I sort of had a backdoor connection with them only through Taylor Swift, Taylor was a gal that uh, Sis and I had met. We were invited to her home. You know, we sat down and started uh, jamming in the living room there, her and I, while everyone else was talking business. You know, Taylor and I, of course, were all about the music. Boy, right away, the way Taylor carried herself, the way she presented herself, not to mention her talent, uh, Sis and I both knew, along with the rest of the crew that we were with, we call it the it factor. You know, no one really knows what it is, but you know it when you see it. And uh, we saw in Taylor that day, and apparently we weren't the only ones. And through some sort of connections that we had to Scott Wachetta, she became, I think, the first superstar on the label. She's how old at this point? She was like 14 or 15 years old. And she was just as mature and professional then as she is now.
0: Yeah, and you two worked up a song during the video. You were shooting a video, and during the break, you worked up a song called The Middle of the Light. Whatever became of
1: that? The Middle of the Light. I love the music, Stephen. I love the creativity uh, that goes into it. I love the writing and the producing and watching a song come to life. I found myself very uncomfortable uh, with the limelight, the whole celebrity aspect of it. We were going to do a video shoot the next day, and I was—I guess—I was kind of complaining to Taylor about how I was dreading going in the studio. And she says, "Oh, I love—I love being in the middle of the light." And we both knew what a great title that was. So she threw out some lines, and I picked up my guitar and a recorder. And that's how that song was born and forgotten about for years. That song was only rediscovered a couple of years ago and it has been recorded. And I'm not sure uh, where it is going to land. Great little song. You know, she definitely brought out a different side. That's where co-writing can come in really neat because she brought in certainly a different element. we got a good little song there. Something I'm proud of.
0: You toured a lot on that first record and uh, like any other musician who tours, you run in circles and, you know, some of the folks that you mentioned you ran into, like Glenn Campbell and Bob Seger, George Jones, sharing a pizza with Garth
1: Brooks. Yeah. You know,
0: what were these guys like and, and what did that mean to a kid from Vermont to hang out with them?
1: Steve, but I was totally amazed. And you've been around enough uh, more artists probably than I have. You know this, Steve. The welcome, you know, that they, they, the camaraderie among the artists was something that I, I never take for granted. And it was something that was so, it was warming. It was a warm, you know, come in under under Mother Country Music's umbrella. And you see that among all these artists, you know, they're cheering each other on, uh, talking about singing on each other's records. I've been blessed. I've had so many of them join me online. That camaraderie, you know, I'm hanging out with Bob Seger at the studio and George Jones, and then, of course, on tour, you, you know, you're, you're performing with a lot of these artists. But always that family of country music among the artists and the musicians, uh, that's something that uh, I value a lot.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because in your book, you take great pains to point out that the mother of country music, the Grand Ole Opry, made such a huge impression on you hanging out backstage.
1: Well, you know, I, I had gone there once before as a child and sat way up, you know, in the back, you know, what do they call them, nosebleed sections. And the next time I was there, you know, I'm, I'm backstage hanging out with Glenn Campbell and all the performers. That was one of those wow moments when you realize that you've gone from there to here. So it really gives you a moment to appreciate all the people that were on that journey with you. There's an atmosphere of exactly what I was just talking about, you know, celebrating each other. I hope that the fans of country music understand that that connection. It's real and it's warm and it's a great thing.
0: We're speaking with Wayne Warner about his new book, Backstage Nashville, the undisclosed story of a major label recording artist. So soon enough, this kid from Vermont would have his own massive hit with Turbo Twang. Mm. <laughs> you want to tell us about that? Is your sister that pushed that forward,
1: kind of, right? I wrote that song as sort of a a slap back to a critic. And I don't know who it was. It was uh, one of my albums who had gotten reviewed. Now I really appreciate the fact that he didn't know how to label me. But at the time, I was a little insulted. You know, he said, I just don't know how to label this guy. Is he country? Is he pop? He's, he's all this other stuff mixed together. And he, he came up with my overall sound as Turbo Twain. And I, I was like, what the heck is that? I went for a walk that night. And by the time I got back, I had that song written. Again, it was nothing I ever really planned on recording. It was one of those that I, I talked about earlier that to me had no substance from a writer's point of view. But uh, Sis loved it. The band loved it at the studio. I stepped out for a minute and I came back in and they were working up that song. And it literally got to uh, a radio station in Pittsburgh. It wasn't mastered or anything. And it got on the air and it just blew up. People are still clapping and stomping to that song in dance clubs all over the world. Uh, which blows my mind because the closest I ever came to dancing was slipping on the Ice here in Vermont. (laughs) And then I could do some pretty cool moves. But it's amazing that this song just caught fire. It did really well on radio, but the dance clubs, it's still a staple. And that uh, just blows my mind. Yeah, it was
0: huge in the country line dance world, making the top 10. Is it fair to say that you had kind of a love-hate relationship with the song?
1: Absolutely. I love it because it literally is why I'm here talking to you. To all music books. That song was certainly the generator of all of that. But I did like the song because I didn't feel it it defined who I wanted to be as an artist and as a writer. As I said, I like to have songs that have substance. To me, it was just a, a little ditty that I, I throw them together. You know, that song still gets me a lot of mail. So yeah, I love it for that. It's connected me to great people like you.
0: Well. That puts you in a different stratosphere, and all of a sudden, you're doing a lot more videos, which you say you were not fond of. You know, there's the styling and the wardrobe. Oh, yeah. And you tell a, a very funny story about a New York City shopping experience. Uh, oh, my
1: gosh, yeah, that was quite a journey. They
0: picked up the tab on
1: that, right? Atlanta took the tab on that.
0: What was it? It was two pair of pants
1: and a shirt? Yeah, for like $3,000 and for this little Vermont guy you know I understand it but for me Stephen you know I I wanted to be about the music that's what I signed up for I wanted it to be about songs that say something Uh, I wanted it to be real I wanted it to be credible and then of course when the business comes in it becomes all about the packaging the brand and that's what I learned from Atlantic how important that all is but I fought that every step of the way I was like you know the, the album's done let put it out right right i understand all that i think sometimes it gets carried a little further than it should i think there are a lot of singers out there that are much more talented than i that um would never have had the chance for certain you know reasons like the, the branding and the marketing and that's always bothered me
0: yeah it's apparent that you really wondered if it was for you and i also grew up on hearing a lot of the quote-unquote original country music like you and I can't help but think today's current country music is almost more pop music in a way. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, I every time I go through a, a long period of time that I'm not writing, I listen to Merle and to Johnny, and I listen to those simple three-minute, 3 chord three songs. When you can write a song and pack it in that simple structure, that's what inspires me. And and I do, I, I put a traditional type song in every album I do now because, you know, I want to pay tribute to what brought me here. But the blend is interesting. I wish, I wish we as a people could learn about how all the different mixtures of music can come together, different backgrounds of music, different vibes of music, different colors of music can come together and make a beautiful song. So I, I think now, especially in times like this, we can learn a lot from that.
0: Yes, indeed. And You made a big move in your personal life about this time where you adopted two sons, and they were both African American boys. And Mm. you didn't have any issues there in Vermont, but in Nashville, it was another story.
1: We did adopt uh, our first son out of Miami, Florida, and our second one out of Chicago. At that time, in our little town here, they were the only two black kids in town. So it was really, everybody thought it was really neat. Growing up here, Steve, I was really naive about the different dimensions of all that, how that can affect you. And I've you know, learned a lot since. And and there was uh, some people in Nashville that had a problem. Well, they didn't have so much a problem with, with the fact that I adopted black kids. They had a problem with the fact that I wanted to talk about it. The, the idea was to change my bio and to say that I don't have any kids. And uh, for me, that was uh, like, you know, sweeping my kids under the rug. So that wasn't going to happen, and that certainly did change me. It enlightened me a lot as to what's going on. We had to make some changes there. There was one particular label that we we couldn't work with at that time. I'm glad to see that it's changing, slowly but changing. That's another thing that I I try to work on somewhat in a stealth fashion, but also sometimes not. So it's uh, something I'm passionate about, obviously. I just hope it opens up. You know, being an artist, as you are, Stephen... You know, I always think that art looks great in black and white, but boy, it show look great when there's colors involved. (laughs) I just wish that that could be viewed more in that way. And
0: to help you understand all of this um, and to get some perspective, you got a call from a very, very foundational country artist who is African-American. Anybody out there can probably figure out who he is. But he told you some pretty fascinating things and gave you some really good advice, didn't he?
1: He did, and he did say it with many words. He said, sing, you know, just sing, and the rest will fall into place. And, uh, you know, he was right. I had grown up uh, listening to that man and my dad's eight-track player, and also that band from Buzzy's Byron You know, he was uh, a heavy hitter at the time, still an icon. Before that call, I wasn't planning on going back to Nashville. I was really kind of, I don't know, I felt kind of misplaced because Nashville was my music, my musical home, but I also felt somewhat alienated for a while. So that call with with that gentleman got me back on track.
0: You refer in your book to the business side, which is W.W. And then there's Wayne Warner, who is the man I'm talking to and who wrote this book. And I I thought that was an interesting way to kind of change the pace. And you could see where you're getting uncomfortable. You wrote a song called God Bless the Children.
1: Was that a response to this reaction? You know, I suppose it might have been. And when you look at the video, you can certainly see that for me, you know, I got the last word will always be the Everest for me of my career. And I needed that at that time. I was out there singing Turbo Twang, and I was working with all these amazing people. Well, I lost my best friend, which was music. It became about the business. Is the next song going to do is good or better than this one? Uh, and, and and writing and keeping up that image that Atlanta paid so much money for. When God Bless the Children came along, it's a song that I wrote years ago, and I had quite frankly forgotten about it i think it was somewhere in michigan it was somewhere in usa got off the tour bus and, and flopped down on the bed at two o'clock in the morning after a radio interview or a show i'm not sure which and i saw these pictures Stephen, of these children that had, that were up for adoption or needed adoption and that song came back to my mind and how those pictures could work with that song and how the song could fit into that that arena of adoption in foster care something of course i'm passionate about I tucked my reasons in every night for that when I was home.
0: And you mentioned the video for that song. That must have been a bear to put together because there's some pretty incredible artists featured in that.
1: Man, that was, you know, we were, we were out on tour at the time that we were putting that together and you know, I remember seeing Sis on that phone for so many miles uh, talking to the other artists. You know, we had Taylor Swift and the Statler Brothers. Elvis Presley, Jordan Ayers singing with me. And, and it's just a, a whole co- an amazing choir of country artists that, that many of your viewers would, would recognize. And that's why I'm so proud of that video, because it displays that community spirit that I that I love to talk about, you know, that's, that's uh, under Mother Country Music's umbrella.
0: Yeah, and as much as you don't like videos, that one is quite the accomplishment
1: that video was something i'm very proud of it had i call it music that matters because i had forgotten that music was that powerful and you know that song went out via the dave thomas foundation slash wendy's and became the most successful psa ever for uh, the adoption arena i had forgotten just how much power a song could have that brought me back to my love of music again and it really made me reevaluate uh, my direction that of course and being a dad to, I needed to find that passion again. And I had lost that and those $3,000 shirts. <laughs> so I was really glad to uh, come back to that. And, and, you know, that song still gets me mailed, Stephen, because of the message. And, and, and that's, we talked earlier, that's one of the things that I love most about writing and stuff is, is saying something and being able to, to get a message to plant a seed. And I think music has such a powerful way uh, of doing that. Yeah, that
0: leads us very well into our next song, which is Painted Hands. And that's another really topical song and video about a very serious subject. Can you tell us the story about that song and what intrigued you to write that?
1: I will. You know, I wrote that song about eight years ago, and it was topical then. I hope it doesn't, I don't know, remain so so in line with the, the day's news. But I was traveling, we were on my tour bus. I think we were working with a band called Lone Star at the time. One of my band members bought me a magazine with Johnny Cash on the cover. Well, because Johnny Cash was on the cover. And I never did read the Johnny Cash story, Stephen. I I, I got as far as uh, a picture of a little a little black boy, and it said, The Legacy of Virgil Ware. I started reading that story, and I just became enthralled with it. By a little boy who was uh, killed, 13-year-old boy who was killed in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement. The other one, back in 1963, and maybe because I was missing my own sons, you know, being on the road for so long, that, that little black and white picture of that boy jumped out of the page for me, and it talked about this little 13-year-old boy who, um, you know, many people remember, those of us who paid attention in history class, I didn't, but the uh, famous Church Street bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, with the death of four young girls, Virgil was the fifth victim that day that no one ever heard about. Uh, You know, just happened to be riding his bike a little ways down the road. And I wanted Virgil's story to be told. That was the only time, the first time I really wrote a song that I wanted every word in it to be true. And I wanted to to tell that story. It took me a while to do it. Uh, I think because I felt so close, uh, so attached to it. I wanted it to be right. And I wanted it to tell that story, but also merge with what's going on today. I literally should put Virgil as a co-writer on that song because when it came, it came quickly. I I couldn't write fast enough. Uh You know how that is, being creative. You get in that zone. And I'm very proud of that song. And another reason I'm proud of that song, we have what we call the United States Choir, where we got an independent artist from every state to come sing with me on that song. Another large project. I think sometimes music can raise the consciousness of a people. Right? Yeah, it's a right, sis. Greg Louganis, Olympic diver, joined me on that song. He kind of lived, you know, a lot of that as far as he was adopted, biracial child, and you know, he went through a lot of the things that the song is really about. The message of the song is about. And so Greg had never sang before. You know, he spent all his time on a diving board, but he did all right behind the mic, also. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, the independent theme runs through the course of your book. It's a fascinating journey. I wanted to ask you, what is your relationship with Nashville and major labels these days? And you always had your own independent label. So, you know, I'm just curious what your relationship is there now.
1: Well, I love Nashville. Uh, heading there again in a week or two. Again, you know, I always say I go to Nashville uh, and I stock up my cupboards on kinship, creativity, and enthusiasm. Then I come home and pig out (laughs) because the the energy, the creative energy in the town, again, among the artists, among the writers, among the musicians, you can't find anywhere else, at least not for me. So I love that. I love that aspect of it. I don't like the monopoly and how five or six labels, five or six people, some of them who don't even listen to country music, control these label heads and are literally dictating what we as a listening audience hear on the radio. I've really come to, uh, to have a bad kind of gut feeling about all that. You know, I, I don't like it. A lot of the people that I came up with, the Turbo Twain, people whose careers were, well, I would say the flavor of the day. They're now independents and uh, and amazing and have done so much for the format. And I just think that there's a place, you know, for, for them, for us, for independents. It's really nice now to be able to make a record, that you, the records you want to make, you know, and hopefully they find an audience. But you don't do it with all that commercialism, that squeaky, clean shimmer that that has to be on records. And I'm glad that uh, it it can be real. Do you have any new musical projects on the horizon? Well, you know, artists sing, you know, and write. And uh, always, uh, I'm very excited, uh, Stephen, about this new album. I think every artist always feels like their newest album is is the best. Uh, But I am excited about this album. Covid nineteen changed our schedule quite a bit, but the album's pretty much done. I wrote all the songs on it. I, I take about a year or two to put an album together. I let the art dictate it now, which is again something you can do as an independent. So I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I'm and I'm also thrilled that there's still a lot of people out there in radio. We've, we've still got great support. There's still people out there in radio who are in it for the music, and they're bucking the system. And so I'm glad to uh, not to be the sole voice in that. And certainly I'm not. So, yeah, I mean, my relationship with Nashville music, the, the, uh, the artist and the, the creative arm of Nashville uh, is something I treasure. The business part of it, I try to stay away from.
0: <laughs> that much I can tell from your book. Wayne Werner, Backstage Nashville, The Undisclosed Story of a Major Label Recording Artist. It's a fascinating read. And uh, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us.
1: Oh, well, Stephen, I got to tell you, I'm just honored that All Music Books is is reviewing this and taking time with me and that you even read the book. Someone like you, Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. And it was a thrill to be here with you. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom, Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, and all-music book's podcast.